Whether you're taking a rip down the lease road in your jacked-up truck or flying first class to Houston, Texas, it's time to sit back and relax for another exciting episode of Oil & Gas Onshore. This episode is brought to you by Tendeka, a global specialist in advanced completions and production solutions for the oil and gas industry. And now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your host, Justin Gautier. All right, let's kick this thing off. Welcome to this week's episode. We're here at the Canon with Sean Six, industry lead at Red Eye Apps. Sean, how you doing this crisp morning? I'm doing all right. I have my scarf and I broke it out for the first time this year. I like that. Yeah. Was it one of those where you had to like go in your attic or something or did you have it ready knowing it was going to get cold? No, man. We we have a winter gear kit that we had to pull out for, for today. Yeah. <laughs> for this week, really. Yeah, yeah no kidding. Yeah. yeah, it was actually, speaking of that, it's funny. So being from Canada, I still... On the weather app, I still like to see what the Celsius is just because it, it like digests for me easier if yeah. I know, you know, so still kind of getting used to that. And I was talking to a guy that I work with. Oh, he's out in West Texas. And there was something going on with some equipment that that we were, we had some drilling fluids going through. Anyway, long story short, I'm like, yeah, you know, this is going on. And I was like, I don't know, maybe the weather, it's minus five out there right now. And he was like, minus five. Yeah. <laughs> and he couldn't believe, he's like, holy smokes, in all my years in the oil field, I've never seen it that cold. And I was like, yeah, I mean, it's not that bad. It's just below freezing. And he's like, what do you mean just below freezing? And, yeah. and so like we kind of caught, I was like, well, that's not You're that like, bad. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then I was like, oh, wait, yeah, no, that was Celsius. And he's, because he had made a call to his guys to like change things because of the weather. Yeah, and I was like, like, we need to start doing some Yeah. And he called and me back. He's like, oh, I couldn't get a hold of him. He's like, but but five and I was like yeah Celsius he's like oh he's like yeah. so that's like thirty something and so we like kind of laughed because obviously it's like so different there. yeah <laughs> I lived in Taiwan for a few years and oh, nice. uh, everything Celsius and yeah. so you would look and you'd, your heart would drop you know you'd see thirty two and you're like oh my god what happened it's the end of the world and then you realize that's Celsius yeah it's okay <laughs> it's gonna be a good day yeah and then same on the flip side we had a guy here in Houston that was from Calgary he came down yeah and it was on a, a quote-unquote snow day okay. in Houston no one shows up <laughs> right. I'm from Oklahoma so we're it's not too cold but it gets colder yeah so we had ice and snow days and so when I hear snow day and I look outside and there's no snow I go to work right everyone else in Houston stays home yeah and uh, so we <laughs> yeah. had this big board meeting he's in from Calgary for this meeting and it was just he and I in the room everyone else called in no way. he thought it was a joke yeah he kept he's like are you guys pranking me is this like he kept looking around like waiting for everyone to show up and I go dude they're serious they're staying home it's that a snow day he was like all. there's no snow <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny speaking of snow there's Calgary's been getting dumped on lately I've just seen pictures and talked to buddies up there and I don't miss that. I always tell people it's a lot easier to shovel rain than it is snow and ice. So, But anyway, before we keep going, I just want to mention this episode is fueled by Perfect Keto. Whether you're on a keto diet or simply looking for healthy snack alternatives and a resource for healthy eating, Perfect Keto offers it all. Anyway, so Sean, we met at Oilcom, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah, you guys were there. You had a real nice booth, real nice folks kind of filling in. And it was one of the first booths I talked to. And of course, you go into a conference, you're eager and ready to talk to everyone. But by the end of it, you're just like drained. But yeah. so we caught each other at a good time. I noticed you were sipping on some Alpha Brain, right? I do. I do yeah. Alpha Brain and I've been on keto for four years. Oh, you have? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So funny enough. Yeah. On it, it's a great brand. Alpha Brain is something I love their little packs. You know, it's it, for me, it's like if I drink them every day, I don't get the benefits. But I find that if I do it with coffee or like you know basically i do it during the work week and then weekends i don't drink it but uh, i i noticed that and so i'm like yeah he's a he's a that's interesting guy. i yeah. didn't notice i didn't know that you had noticed yeah, that but i noticed that, yeah. weird shit like that. that's funny i'm man. huge you're in the observant because it's yeah. like for context there's like 
I don't know, 50 million satellites at this place. I yeah. took a video and I was like, anybody need a satellite? Because yeah. it was like every satellite you could dream. And there's all these lights flashing and stuff. And you noticed the- I noticed all of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, just, that's, that's how I- That's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I have an eye for that. That and like shoes. I don't know why. It's just the weird thing that I have going on. But so, okay, you've been on keto for a long time. I don't want, this is, for sure, everyone yeah, out yeah. there, this isn't a nutrition <laughs> podcast, but because I'm interested in it, I'm going to ask. So why did you get doing keto and, and what's been your experience like? Because a lot of people, and, and just as a little sidebar, a lot of people in, in oil and gas, especially who travel, you know, they're like, oh, I don't know what to eat. And, you know, I'm trying to lose weight. And there's just been this huge trend of people trying to do what they think is keto, yeah. which is not real keto. It's no. just like some dummy version of it that they read yeah. on broscience.com. I know. But it, it actually, <laughs> the benefits and the research that's been going into it over the last few years is, is actually fascinating. And it's a good, in my opinion, it, it's a good diet, assuming you, you, some people don't do well on it, but it's a great diet for people that are in the field that, you know, are staying up late hours, I mean, that ketogenic, you know, like being in that state of ketosis is actually very good and you don't get those increases in blood sugar, those crashes. So you can actually, in my opinion, and you can kind of sustain a level of cognitive function for longer and, and it's a sustainable fuel. What, what's been your experience with it? That's kind of, well, I got into it for health reasons, really. But good for you. I was traveling a lot, as you know, working in the oil field, you travel quite a bit. And mm-hmm. uh, I think the first year... So we moved back from Taiwan and we, I got a job in the operations group, but as kind of an IT document controller, engineering data manager. And we had a big as building project and we would go to the field and you're out there for days. And, you know, some, there's not, there's not like a fast food place everywhere. As mm. you can imagine, this was the Eagleford. So South Texas, right. And it was early days of Eagleford too. So now there's a bunch of stuff. It's like cities have popped up where there used to be just like, you know, dirt roads. Yeah. But, yeah. um, <laughs> Yeah, so I, I unfortunately wasn't doing well. I, I didn't do it right, and I was eating a lot of things I shouldn't, and uh, sure. just eating what you want when you want. And when you're hungry, you go grab whatever's available. And as you can imagine, there's not like a, a healthy option. Sometimes you're just taking whatever, literally whatever's out of a trailer, you know, you yeah. can get or whatever you packed in your backpack. I went into consulting after that. So about four years later, I was traveling Monday through Thursday for consulting, and it was kind of in the it's still in the oil field, but I was I was doing that quite a bit, and I gained a bit of weight. And just wasn't feeling good. And I was trying to get in shape and I kept hitting like this plateau and I would get sick all the time. And it was a Thursday morning. And I don't know if you've ever done consulting, but consulting, they uh, depends on what you're doing. But in the BD side of things, you're, you may be on a project, but you're also pitching, you know, and trying to get new things. So when you travel, you hit up as many people as you can. You take them to lunch, you take them to dinner, you try to close new deals. Yep. And then I would do that. And that includes, you know, alcohol and, and food and desserts and so I would do that Monday through Thursday. Thursday morning, I was trying to work out before I flew out for the, the week. And I was listening to a podcast and Mark Sisson was on there. Yeah. And he was talking about the health benefits. And he goes, if you give me two years, I can reset your health. And That's right so then awesome. and there, I was like, sold. I'm going to do it. I'll do it for two years. And I did cold turkey. And I'll say I learned a lot of lessons. That's uh, tough, don't man. do it cold turkey is number one. Yeah. Especially if you've been really bad, like if there's been, if you drink alcohol regularly and if you eat carbs regularly and simple sugars, yep. I would say roll off of that first before you go cold turkey because the, the keto flu is a real thing. Mm-hmm. And at the time, and you're absolutely right, people call it keto or they call it keto friendly, which is at least now they're starting to say keto friendly, which is just code for there's low carbs, yeah. but you cannot sustain ketosis on keto friendly. And people would throw stuff in saying it's keto and it, and it really isn't keto, but you have to have the macros, right? So as soon as you say macros, 
most people tune off. And, yeah, because uh, most people don't track shit. No, and it's hard to track. It, it really is. is. So if you're not going to be disciplined about it, I advise not to do it mm-hmm. because otherwise you're just you're just suffering. Right. <laughs> you know, well, you're not really in ketosis. It's funny because people be like, oh yeah, I'm on keto, and then like I'm on keto for like most of the day, and then they'll crush a bunch of beers and burgers at night. And I'm like, the combination of all that high fat, then with the carbs, yeah. you're literally a, like you're making a catalyst of disaster for your health. So it's it's interesting. And actually, the book I was telling you about that I'm, I'm reading right now is called Keto Answers by Anthony Gustin. Okay. It is a great, very simplified. He, he did it with another doctor. They basically did it. It's a book that's sort of formatted around Q&A. And because there's so many questions about it. So each chapter is focused around a certain topic within you know, keto, but so they kind of give it an outline and then they have questions in there that they answer for like Lane layman's terms. They throw a little bit of science in there, but it is like the, one of the best nutrition books I've ever read. So oh, that's good. And speaking of books, you actually came in here with a book, which I really appreciate. So maybe to return the favor, I'll get you a keto answers book. You probably already know all the answers, but it's a, it's a good reference for someone like myself. I kind of go in and out of it. I have, and people laugh at me all the time, but when I was at Paleo FX last year, Keto Mojo is a company. And so I test my ketone levels and my blood sugar every yeah. day before lunch to see if I'm, you know, how many millimolars I have. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, see, no one's willing to do that. No, no. People yeah. right now are probably turning this off. So anyway, <laughs> let's, uh, let's go, let's start talking about oil and gas. For all the listeners out there, we apologize. We got going on a, on a little tangent there. Sean, tell me about your background and how you got in the oil field and kind of where you're at now. So years ago in uh, the early 2000s, I had switched degrees. I went from working in nonprofits. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And I was going to business school. And I was helping a friend with a home project. And he was a recruiter at Devon Energy. Okay. And he said, I can't remember how much I was making then, but he said, are you willing to make, I think it was like 28000 a year. <laughs> and he goes, I'll pay for your college. I'll give you benefits. You'll have a 401k and you won't be making twenty eight. If you do a good job, you won't be making twenty eight for long. Right. So I switched and I went over from nonprofit, which wasn't much more than that, to working for him. How old were you at the time? I was about 24, 25. Okay. Yeah. And so it was back in the day. Do you remember when there were, I think they probably still exist, but it's probably more sophisticated now. But they had scouts and they would go look for where you're, where people are drilling and they would, they would pay you money. Okay. They, they would try I'm to get. I'm familiar with that. Yeah, so scouts, they have scout reports. It's a land thing that goes back, way back from the early land days in oil and gas where they they share data, they'll pay back and forth. They didn't call it data, but anyway, they would basically pay money to, to steal information, find out, you know, hey, Chesapeake, where are they drilling? Where, where's the next big play? And they would go try to lease up that land just to get ahead of it, and it was just a short-term kind of swap. Mm-hmm. So basically, he goes, if you can pass a background check, I'm going to give this to you. You're going to hand out files. And the first thing I thought is, why aren't they digital? Yeah. And it took me a while. I didn't know anything about oil and gas other than my family has some mineral rights from the Oklahoma land run way back in the day. That's all I knew about oil and gas. Mm-hmm. So I get in and I'm handing out records and Devin did a really good job of training. And they so they paid for my degree, but they also brought in like land management for non-land managers, cool engineering for non-engineers and geology for non-geologists. So in addition to many other courses that they offered. So that if you took advantage of it, you could learn quite a bit. And I was just, you know, being a... I don't know if you've ever done your strengths finder assessment, but I'm a learner and an achiever. Okay. So I love learning new things and then trying to apply it and, yeah. and uh, ideation as well. I love coming up with finding out what problems they have or what these industry subject matter experts say mm. is a problem and then what technologists are doing in that area and seeing how the two can bridge together. Super. Cool. So I immediately took advantage of that and, and learned as much as I could. But as a result, ended up getting promoted 
quickly through the organization and going into the rotation program. And I actually turned it down at first. Okay. I was like, I don't want to do this. I was finishing. I, they had actually, I had graduated and then they were, they paid for me to go to grad school for my MBA. I ended up switching to an MSM, a master's of science and management, but it's where you kind of, instead of where the MBA goes to accounting you in finance, you go into strategic management and then human resource management, kind of assessing your people, your skills and their talent and where you want to go. Okay. So it's more internal and, and less numbers driven. But so I, I did the MSM and they were paying for it and they offered me to do this rotation program. And I said, uh, well, I'm kind of busy and I have to make straight A's in order to get reimbursed. Otherwise, I'm paying for it myself. Yeah. And so the, the VP that had worked with me on that, she said, don't be an idiot. She literally said that. And I go, what do you mean? Don't be an idiot. I can't fail and I, I can't make B's and I can't afford to pay this back. So yeah, she said, I'll give you time to do it. You can study here at work if you'll do this rotation program. Okay. And so we ended up doing the rotation program and I get to sit with like super smart people, people like in the legal group and the PMO, which is my first experience with, with project management. And then okay. that's how I ended up becoming a PMP was through that rotation. And you just get to hear like engineers in the field working with things and you hear their problems, you see their processes. And at the time they had this strategy that was like, they called it autonomy with alignment. So they let you run. If you're in South Texas, you run your business, how you run your business. If you're in Oklahoma, they ended up saying, no, we just need alignment. Mm -hmm. So everyone was buying all their systems. They're buying all these IT kits and none of them talk to each other. So there, there's a lot of overhead and a lot of people don't realize about 20 to 30% of a publicly traded oil and gas company, their overhead is all about compliance and reporting. Ooh. 20 to 30%. So it, it's a problem that once you go public, you have to be compliant. And I ended up getting into the SOX group, wow. which is Sarbanes-Oxley. So I, yeah. on the records management side, we had training and it was right after, if you remember, notorious and infamous Enron stories. Yes. So Arthur Anderson shredding a bunch of documents on behalf of Enron and uh, out of it spring socks, really. Yeah. So I was the ARMA compliance guy for a while, which was as boring as it sounds. Yeah. You basically, everybody that came on had to go through a, an ARMA 101 to 105 training. And that was part of our job. So I did that for a while. And then uh, during the downturn, elected to leave and go teach English for a year in, oh, no uh, in Taiwan with my then girlfriend, now wife. Cool. And then after a year, we came back and been in Houston ever since, since 2012. And I came into the oil and gas space in uh, the Eagleford Shell, working as a business analyst and engineering data manager. Okay. So Who it was, was all about the That was at BHP. BHP. So cool. kind of small world. BHP bought PetroHawk. Yeah. I had a buddy and who worked at PetroHawk when that transition went down. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to hear the stories. And I... I, we were talking about this beforehand, I think, about the uh, the golden goose. Yeah. You know, so large organizations buying smaller organizations. I think that's going to be a trend. It's going to continue, especially we were talking about earlier the overvaluation of these assets. Yeah. And I think if you look at free money, which a lot of people aren't really looking at the macro, you had free money with the stimulus stuff. You had low interest rates. Mm -hmm. For the last like what nine or 10 sessions, I think eight out of the 10 sessions, the interest rates have increased. The okay. stimulus has pulled back. Right. I mean, this is conversations we've had with people in private equity. And I think they're saying, and this is not me being, this is, this is their words, but these valuations are somewhat ambiguous. It's hard to value unconventional. Mm -hmm. And the valuations that they're doing are based on unconventional modeling for unconventional in a lot of cases. Yeah. So they think they're overvalued and we might see a bit of a pullback in that space in the next few years. So these big companies come in by the small companies and I learned a lot and I really appreciate the opportunity that I had there. It made a lot of good friends, a lot of good connections. And that's actually how I ended up at Red Eye. So they, they brought this offshore model okay. 
for, you know, in the offshore model being, we're going to think about it for a long time. <laughs> we're going to build it for about half that time. So yeah. five to 10 years. And <laughs> yeah. then it'll go online seven years later or something like that. Right. Very long So they brought term. that offshore model to manage their onshore assets. That's not going to work. It didn't work. Yeah. yeah. Or it could work. It just won't keep up. It didn't keep up at all. And it was, we had at the time, we were planning 42 rigs. I think we got up to 38 rigs running in North America. Mm -hmm. And a majority of those were running in the Eagleford. Yeah. So you have this model that's very built for like large industrial capex long-term projects. And you've got 30 rigs that are handing over a well you know, some wells in the shallow areas might be every 30 days and then you got 40 to 50 days on average. And they got multi-well pads. So once you get the engineering model where you're going from one well pad to like a 10 well pad, you're handing over a bunch of data quickly and this offshore model just didn't fit. And so like a few of us got together and just wrote our own standard and we're like, we have to do stuff different and the old process for managing this transition has hmm. to change. And I think that's the what we're going to see in the next few years from the technology side is there's got to be a transition from how we used to do things and how we used to think about things yeah. to what technology makes available now and, and what the capabilities are now. Right. Well, then let's touch on that a little bit. I mean, what are the sort of the challenges in the way we've done business historically and, and what are we experiencing now and, and where do we need to go? I mean, what, what would you, how would you describe that? Yeah. So there's a lot of education that has to happen because people, you have a lot of biases you don't even realize. Mm -hmm. I think one example is, so Red Eye, we have this, there's an AutoCAD file and then like think about building a house. I think I'm going to build it. I get permits. I do all this stuff. There's a lot of analog. You're sending data outside the company or outside of your own organization, often through email to third parties. So you send it to your primary contractor who may send it to their third or fourth you know, subcontractor. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, what we found is less than 35% of that data. And that, this is what I found at BHP. And I thought it was a BHP thing, but going on to consulting and going on to other organizations, it's not. It's it's because of the, technolo the technological constraints okay. that were implemented. So a lot of these processes were implemented in the 80s and 90s, and we've just continued. So the okay. first thing you think about whenever you're like, I've got this proprietary software, whether it's a Microsoft Word document, and then you send that to me and I go, hey, I don't have Word. Mm. You know, so what do you do? You immediately go to, I'm going to PDF this. Yeah, You've got a PDF viewer, so I'm going to send you a PDF. So I immediately, for most people, you lose that data and all the metadata associated to it. Okay. So if you're thinking about a 3D model and you're thinking about all the metadata associated with it, whenever you strip that down to a 2D, you're losing a lot of the proprietary stuff that could help you with some analytics. It could help you with taking that forward in the future. We have, uh, for those that don't know, in the engineering space, there's greenfield projects, which basically means it's brand new. So I'm going to create it from, from nothing. Hmm. But we're in a world, and this is outside of oil and gas as well, our infrastructure in the U.S. is is going on 100 years old. Most of it, a majority of it. Bridges, dams, we talked about the dam that was felling in, in Austin last year. Mm -hmm. Just got inspected, by the way. It had been inspected wow. the year before, and it's put on the high risk. And on the high risk, that means it goes from being inspected every 10 years to being inspected every five years. Hmm. So that seems it should be less to me. But right. I don't know. You would think so. But yeah. they're just stretched. There's wow. tons of bridges, tons of dams, and there's only so many people and so much money to go service all of this and inspect it. Yeah. So our infrastructure is old. Pipelines are old and aging. How we get oil out of the ground and how we transmit it, all of that has data associated with it. Yeah. And the way we are managing it is really the way we managed in the 90s 
with the technology of the 90s. We, we have a ton of Excel spreadsheets. We manually track it. We've got PDFs everywhere. We lose all the data richness of it. Yeah. And there's no way for us to automate this and tie it all together. Yeah. So I think the big thing that, we're gonna, that we need to see in oil and gas is the adoption of new ideas and new technology. And I think there's a huge area, like we were talking about custody transfer. Yeah. So the transfer of custody, and we, there's a, if you look at it, the way we transfer, measure oil, and we transfer it from one entity to the next. So if I'm going from a tank to a truck and I'm transferring that, they actually write that out on a physical piece of paper. Someone comes out and signs it. They go verify it and they measure it. The way they measure that transfer is the same way the Romans measured grain transfer. It literally <laughs> was, was created by the Greeks. Two thousand years ago. That's crazy. so we're literally our API standards for for small tank custody transfer is very similar to how if you went back you would recognize somebody transferring grain to a cart or right. transferring oil to a truck. It's very the same process. So why is that? You think like why haven't they? I mean, to me that seems like something they would easily be able to automate through some sort of meter digitize it and then upload it i mean why why haven't they made that leapy thing you can and a lot of people are trying and on the larger facilities they do okay but because oil and gas especially onshore it is so disparate and there's not a lot of connectivity that's a big issue is the connectivity Hmm. and the technology is there to do that but the cost and the appetite is not there i think a lot of people look at it and they say it's too cumbersome. We would have to go instrument all these wells. We would have to change how the operators do it. Sure. And at the end of the day, the operator, the boots on the ground are the ones making that decision. Yeah. If they adopt it, then yeah, you're going to get that technology innovation. But most of them are comfortable with the piece of paper and the clipboard and the battery life of a clipboard is far better than an iPad. Yeah, and yeah. they don't have to worry about if it goes out, I have to go back and charge this or I, I forgot my plug, I forgot my charger. I, I, I can see that. And a lot of that I think is just like a lot of the conversation around that type of stuff is just shifting the culture. And and to yeah. me, a lot of it, just on the drilling side of things is you have, you know, the older generation who's used to doing things, they're kind of riding it out. They don't want to have to learn new technologies and all these, all the stuff that these kids are doing coming out of college. And so it's, it's like, I think, I mean, eventually, obviously it's going to happen, but I think a lot of it is just culture change and, and, and having everyone on board. And that's more on like a micro level with different, like whether it's processes or certain things within the drilling or completions world. But I mean, to me that I, I can, I, I can see why that would be, cause you would have to change a whole way. And it's, it's the chain sort of, it's not just changing one piece of the puzzle. It's like, you, if you change that, then you have to change it a lot of other things. Yeah. And so people are like, it's so capital intensive why do we want to spend the cost? Let's just keep doing it because it's, it's, it's like, well, it doesn't, it's not broken. Why do we need to go fix something that's working already? I guess right. too. But it is broken. It's just covered right. up, you know? Good point. So think about this. There's a company called Data Gumbo. Yeah. So, they're so, here actually. They're here. Okay. Yeah. So they've got the, the blockchain technology. When I, when I talked about blockchain, I was in an innovation role and I talked to a CFO about blockchain. And he laughed at me. And I said, custody transfer is a huge issue. Sure. And if you look at the overhead for a company to do the allocations, so you own a well, you have land, someone produces it, I have to show you how much you made. So there's a guy that comes out to your well pad, he pulls it to a truck, he drops a ticket. You, the operator, the oil and gas company, sends somebody out to pick up that ticket, confirm that he took the right amount and what he puts on that piece of paper matches what was in their automation system if they have one. And then they also measure what's on the tank. So that guy then takes that back to the, to the field office. He types it into a system. He might type that one data point. I, we did a business process mapping with somebody. He put same data field, one data field into five systems. Really? Every day. Oh, painful. Uh, what we find in the operator side, whenever you do this BPM process, operators, guys that are actually what you would call 
high value add people. You need those guys to make money. Mm-hmm. They go out to the field, they write a bunch of stuff down, they spend 30 to 40%, sometimes up to 60% of their day, typing in that data into multiple systems. We map that report back, the five data points went to three reports, which were all shown on Monday. And one, one example is wow. downtime. So you've got this environmental guy who's rounding down, because or rounding up rather, so he's got this emissions thing. So the more that they're, the more that that flare is on, the more they're emitting, the more carbon emissions tax he has to pay. So his goal is to keep that as low as possible. Then you've got another guy on the operation side. His KPIs or metrics for success is to round around that down. Right? Yeah, yeah. So you got one guy rounding up, one guy rounding down. We find that same data point from that one guy in the field typing it in could be a discrepancy of twenty percent between the two reports. And it's shown to the same people on, on that Monday. And it just compounds, right? It compounds over time. And then you've got the the book to market. So you've got this guy that's, he's typing in how much I made. Now you've got a publicly traded company that has to show that to the market. How much did I actually make? And am I meeting my goals to my stakeholders and or shareholders? And that's three months usually. Mm. So that guy sends that piece of paper after he types it in. He sends that to somebody in the back office. They're doing this allocations accounting process. Wow. So you're talking by the time that guy pulled the, the fuel from the truck to the day it's reported to the market is in best case three months. Hmm. So companies like Data Gumbo, I think, are going to change that because you can automate this and decentralize it. And you've got a lot of the infrastructure out in the field, but people don't trust their data being public. So you have to have encryption yeah. and you got to raise the awareness. But I think you made a good point about why. A lot of the guys are. There's a statistic that came out through the World Economic Forum that says the largest growing group in the engineering space is over 60 so technical roles, operators and engineers are the largest growing organization or group of people is over 60. The, the smallest is under 30. Really? The Global Energy Talent Index came out last year, 2018, with, with a report that said there are more people leaving the workforce in technical roles and engineering roles and operation technical roles. There are more people leaving it than are entering school to learn how to do those jobs. Hmm. What would you say? Is the demand the same or is it growing or shrinking? I think the demand is growing. Right. We've got we've got more production, we've got more if you look at plastics, you look at refining. I mean, we're we're not doing less, we're doing more. Right. And there's more manufacturing. There's definitely more demand on the maintenance side of things. Like if you talk about this aging infrastructure, that's going to have maintenance roles associated with it. And it's going to have engineering looking at it to say how can we That's what I was saying a while ago. So we got greenfield and then you have an existing thing. Whenever you add to that existing thing or have to update that, that's a brownfield project. So brownfield is I've got this data that exists somewhere, but i got to go dumpster dive to find it. I've got to go look at 100-year-old drawings that are in someone's drawer in their basement. And if it hasn't been flooded in Houston, then they're still (laughs) good. No shit, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So so the brownfield world, you've got a lot of demand coming, I think, for sure. There's going to be – we've been calling it the brownfield revolution. There's uh, a, I've heard that term. I had no idea what it was. Now yeah. it makes sense. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So you, you got a lot of smart people that are leaving and, and the people that are coming in are being wooed by, you know, if you've got the opportunity to work for a sexy tech startup, right. you're going to go do that instead of going like suffer. And there are a few people, but you can tell whenever you go into these rooms, there's a lot of older people in the room. And we've talked to some people, I'll leave them nameless, but energy providers and big, big companies. They're actually hiring engineers back that retired 10 years ago because they can't find the data, they can't find the drawings, and then they never transfer that knowledge. 
and there's no system of record to transfer that knowledge. So they're actually hiring people back to come in two, three days a week just to educate the new staff Holy and help smokes. them automate some of this stuff. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So help me tie this together with what you guys are doing. And you probably touched on it, but you know, you obviously you're working for Red Eye now. So to describe how Red Eye either, you know, kind of brings value to sort of help tie all that together or provide solutions with these types of challenges. Yeah, so the main thing we do is we tr- we say we're changing how people work. Okay. We want to change how you work. And that does come with a bit of education saying, here's why you do what you do in the old days. We PDF'd it because that's the best technology. We kept Excels because that was better than any other tracking system. The people in the field, they don't have access to that system of record sometimes. Yeah. And they don't have access or they may not even be an employee of the company. So the licensing models of most companies is I pay you a seat and you can share data inside your company with people who are also being paying for that license seat, but you can't share data outside of the company. Okay. So Red Eye changes that. Our, our licensing model is unlimited users, unlimited usage. That is to stop that from happening. We want you, because you own the data. If you're an operator, you own the data. If you have someone coming in on a Brownfield project, because the reality is you're not going to hire all those people. They're not going to be headcount. You're going to go to a specialist in whatever it is that, that you need help on, and you're going to do that short-term project. Yeah. But when you share that data out, you're sharing it through PDFs because they don't have that proprietary software or or whatever the case may be. So what we do is we bring that into one cloud environment. We make it mobile enabled. You don't have to leave the app. Mm. That's the big, that's the value proposition is you're giving those people the data. It's the system of record. And because it's unlimited users, you could bring them in. If it's a two-year project, they've got access for two years. Every time there's an update and there's a change to that drawing or that document, they're actually seeing that drawing in real time. They have the ability to store and forward it. So they can download it in the app. When they go out, they can mark it up and redline it. Mm-hmm. That process is still very manual. If you look at the okay. redline process for any of these large CapEx projects, people are printing documents. They're walking out. They're redlining it. They might scan it. They might take a photo. I've literally seen photos of napkins. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, they send yeah. it and go, hey, you said this. It's actually this. And they send it back to the doc controller or the engineering data manager. Huh. And they try to put it in the system. So we, we automate that and we remove that process altogether in addition to digitizing that clipboard activity. Yeah. So the, the network capability and availability is an issue and a constraint and why people aren't adopting it. So we take that and we give you that ability to store and forward. So when you go out to the field, you can have your checklist and your work orders and it's geotagged. So you actually know what's tagged to you and, and what assignments you have. You go through and you select you know, is the well on yes or no? Is the flare on yes or no? Is there a spill? No. And then you just log it. And all that data can be forwarded onto those other systems. So at the end of the day, that guy that was spending 30 to 60% of his day typing stuff in five different times, you're just going to pull it from the system of record and automate it. So we've seen that go down to as low as 10%. And I think everyone should be thinking that way. You're going to have fewer of those guys. That's the reality. Yeah. And those People, as you were talking about people being bored, it's easy to disrupt somebody that's got like what we call low cognition or, or low, they're not really engaged. Yeah. When you're typing from one system to another, from one paper to another, to a system, you're not really that engaged and your productivity is killed. Your motivation's probably killed unless you're inspired by that stuff. I don't know how many people that are. Yeah. <laughs> but at the end of the day, that guy, his value to the company and his, his value to himself is adding, is adding value by being out on the site, yeah, turning, turning wrenches, boots on the ground type stuff. If he's in an office, he's not really adding that much value. So you're going to have fewer of those guys and you're going to need them to be more productive. And so we automate that process by giving him that digitized clipboard and he's not manually typing that in at the end of the day. That's nice. it in a nutshell. That's kind of the 10,000 yeah. foot view. Yeah. No, I mean, that, that certainly is easy to see the value in that. I mean, time is money. 
And if you can, anytime you can automate something and do more with less, I mean, it's a huge win for everybody. So the company, and I was looking, it's it's based out of Australia, is that right? Started in Australia. Yeah. Did, was it a primarily an oil and gas service company type of deal? Or it actually it was mining. Mining, okay. How it got started in the, the upfront piece. Our founders were in Brisbane. Yeah. And they were they worked had an engineering firm that was doing an as-built project. So as-built basically means, you know, basically it was BHP bought some mines and bought some some other people's assets. Well, whenever you buy it, everyone values these companies based on the subsurface. So you're looking at what the minerals are and how much that's worth. You don't look at the surface. I was on a project that was $66 million to get the surface compliant. Wow. But that wasn't valued at all. It was only valuing the subsurface, and it's such a minimal cost that companies don't care. They go, hey, we bought it. We got to get it up to date, and we got to get compliant because big pockets get audited. Small pockets don't get audited. So if you've got a few mines or wells that you bought, Mm -hmm. you're probably not going to be compliant on everything that a big company is going to be required to be compliant on. So anyway, they would fly out on to Perth. They would go out to the field with, with the BHP folks. They would do their work, and then they would come back. They would submit it and say, here's what, here's what you bought. Here's what the drawings say, and they would red line it and say, here's what it actually is, and here's what we need to do to fix it. Mm-hmm. Send it into the process. That's where that 35% first started. They would get back on Friday. They would fly the red eye, which is where the name came from. Oh, okay. They would fly the red yeah. eye from Perth to Brisbane. Friday morning, they'd wake up, and they would have their coffees. They'd pull up the report, and they would look and see... 35% of the data was actually returned to BHP properly from their dot control process. And it's even less than that's accurate. So they might actually mix up the version. They have version yeah. zero when you sent version two. Pretty and then easy. even less than that has the AutoCAD file. So these companies are not getting the AutoCAD file. They're not getting the 3D files that they pay for. They're paying you know, 150 bucks, 200 bucks an hour for an AutoCAD guy to sit there and come up with all this stuff. And then at the end of the day, they get a PDF that's a flat folder and they can't reuse it. Yeah. So anyway, they would come back and they said, there's got to be a, a better solution for this. And they found that the pricing structure, the licensing model process and the technology constraints were basically stopping them from being able to do their job. And what was supposed to be six months was taking years. So they went to market, they couldn't find anything, and they decided, we'll build it ourselves because it can't be that hard. Right. It can't be that hard to do this. We're not cracking, you know, we're not putting people on the moon. Yeah, you know, This yeah. is an engineering drawing. We should be able to do this. No kidding. So they ended up creating their own company called Red Eye as a result. It was a kind of a joke at first saying, hey, uh, on the Red Eye, let's work on this project. No way. And they ended up calling it. It was Project Red Eye. Now it's just Red Eye. No, what a neat story. What, I mean, so how long have you guys been in the States for then? So we just closed a Series B last year. Wow. And so I was at BHP. I brought Red, I didn't bring Red Eye in. Red Eye was brought in. I was a project manager to pilot this in South Texas. Okay. And to change the onshore model. We changed the onshore model and we, we were trying to do this. We had a lot of other, we had about 150 innovation projects that year. Oil was 110. <laughs> yeah, yeah, So yeah. That, that's the caveat there. As soon as that happened, uh, we actually had a drone project with Texas A&M looking for uh, like hyperspectral cameras. No way. Trying to do predictive leak detection before your sniffer would find it, the camera could I find it. I heard of that actually. Texas A&M is pretty good, man. They're ahead of the curve on a lot of that stuff. They own Super some really cool. good IP. Yeah. So anyway, I, I uh, brought Red Eye in. I met the CEO. He understands the problem like better than anybody. Of course. And we became really good friends as a result. I stayed friends with him through the years. When he came in to close the Series B last year, it was last October. Mm. This week, actually, last October. Or sorry, yeah, it was uh, right around my, my birthday is October 29th, and he came in October 28th. Okay. So we hung out and had uh, breakfast, and he goes, would you help me open the energy market here? And, here in the U.S. So we opened an office and we had the biggest RFP come in literally that next month no way. and had to fly people in from all over. And we've been downtown at station as a result because we I, we didn't have an office. I, I literally yeah. said yes. And the next week they're like, oh, by the way, we've got this RFP and we need to respond to it. <laughs> oh, and man. So the demand is there. People are seeing it. And I think as you see people 
want to adopt new ideas and, and wrap their head around it. I think one funny example is we were talking to somebody and we're like, yeah, you don't need the PDF anymore. And it was just the dot controller. It was like, well, how, how am I supposed to email PDFs? Like, <laughs> you don't have to email it because it's in the system. You just send them the hyperlink and they can get yeah. to the document. And it just took, I mean, here we are like three months into a pilot and the dot controller is just now wrapping its head around, oh, I'm not going to be emailing PDFs anymore. It's just Dude. changing the whole process for them. So I love that. It takes a while. Just yeah. flipping it upside down. Like yeah. that's the coolest thing. What have you seen or like what's your experience with regards to the challenges coming in and trying to basically, you know, enter a marketplace, you know, in a fairly volatile environment where people right now are so cost conscious? I mean, are you coming up with much resistance when you're approaching potential customers and, and, and trying to prove the value? I mean, you've obviously got some great case studies and, and you know, a decent track record. But with the environment right now, is it challenging to, to enter new market? It is challenging. And there's a lot of sunk cost fallacy out there. I mean, what is that? Sunk cost fallacy is I've already spent the money and you just start throwing more good money after bad, that old saying. Okay. So a few examples, one client had sunk $56 million into a project to do what we do. And another, which is a super major, they had sunk 10 years and $32 million. Sure. So if you add these numbers together, you're talking, you could buy your own software company. No so your software should work, but because it's just maybe bad design, maybe a good idea, but bad execution, the architecture is wrong. You're trying to do it on-prem. So a lot of these guys, on-prem means on-premise. So you basically are paying for the servers, you're paying for the licensing, and you're bringing every, all the developers in-house to, to cobble this together. So what we do, because we have this online markup tool, we have the online, the cloud storage, the workflows are in the tool itself. So there's basically three or four things that we do really well. These guys in the, in the large organizations, they've paid people for the last 10 years to develop stuff in-house. And one client, a super major, which obviously if it's super major, you'll know the name if I said it, they go, this is great. I love it. It's one app. I wouldn't have to leave. The licensing model would be different. One group, another company completely separate said they would save 600000 a year on licensing because they don't need AutoCAD anymore. They don't do any of the AutoCAD. The engineering firms do. Oh, they wow. just view it. So the Navis works, the 3D file, basically looking at these things. It could be sixty thousand to one hundred twenty thousand dollars a year per seat. Holy! So smokes. they added it up, and they're like, "We're saving six hundred thousand a year by going to you guys." They didn't go to us <laughs> because basically they've got doc control teams and engineering people that have been doing this old process. They don't yeah. want to change the process, and they've got technology they sunk a lot of money in. And Ooh. quote unquote, they said, "We have no appetite to change it." Four systems, four licensing models. None of them allow them to talk to external companies. So that's all internal, just to workflow it, to save it, all of that stuff. Plus the headcount, who knows how much they're spending. But yeah, there's a lot of resistance on the larger organizations. Small organizations, they're so small that they don't mind walking around with a physical piece of paper. Yeah. So what we've been focusing on is that mid-cap. I feel like the mid-guys, they, they have to be compliant and they have vendors that they rely on and they understand the problem, but they're not going to staff up a few hundred dot controllers for a CapEx project. Makes sense. So they just don't have the, they don't have the headcount. As you were talking in another podcast about, you know, those guys are not going to be fighting and competing in the same space as the majors and they have to stay efficient and they have to, they have to stay lean and mean. So we've had a lot of success there where we haven't had success is uh, fighting that battle. I was mentioning Gartner. If you're not familiar with Gartner, they're probably the premier IT consultancy. Okay. They have a thing called the magic quadrant. So a lot of companies, whenever we get brought in by the operator and the guy that's out in the field, so the engineering guys in the field, the operator in the field, they want us, and they're 90% of the time the guys that bring us into the table to have the conversation. 
unfortunately they don't have buying decisions and it goes to a CIO. Mm. Well, our licensing model is different than what most CIOs are, are used to referencing. Okay. CIO, most CIOs at large organizations are old infrastructure guys, IT infrastructure, meaning they manage speeds and feeds. They have that physical kit that they manage and that's what their remit is. And now they're kind of moving into this, I manage licenses as well. They don't really understand the operational problem or even the operational technology in the field. Some do, course, but, yeah. but a lot of them don't. So a guy in the field comes in and says, hey, I need this app. You know, we need an engineering data app or a work mobility app. The first thing they do is they go look in-house and say, do we have something here? Well, we've got SharePoint or we've got whatever. So they'll say they can do it. But SharePoint, you can't share externally in a lot of ca- most cases. And you also need to be on the enterprise network. If you're in the field, you're not on the enterprise network. You're on a public network. Yeah. So it's just not going to work. And that's where a lot of, we've seen a lot of these poor, poorly executed things fell is they were trying to do it in something that can only work inside of an enterprise network, doesn't work offline. So anyway, yeah, the, the, the engineers bring us in, the operators bring us in, and the CIOs go to Gartner. If they don't have anything in-house that does it, they go to Gartner and they say, well, you're not listed on Gartner or you're not big enough. We got listed last year on what they call EIM, Engineering Information Management. But that's the first time we've been listed, and it's not a real comparison tool. It's just saying, hey, these guys do this. So if you go to, they have an annual report called the CIO Energy Report, I believe, we're on like page 46 of 110 okay. and they've got us listed as one of the vendors that does engineering information management. There's another one called the magic quadrant. So a lot of guys, a lot of CIOs will go as step two or step three. They don't actually do it. Their people do it. They'll go look at the quadrant and say, where does this stack up against these other, like if you're going to a CRM, you're going to look at Salesforce. Yeah. It's going to be in the top. And then you're going to see these other tools and you're going to see where do I stack up against these tools. And that's going to be your RFP. So when they're going to EIM RFPs, we're not listed yet. Most startups aren't going to be. You're too small. And Gartner's not going to risk their reputation on an unproven technology. Of course. Fair enough. We have to work to raise our reputation, raise our brand, and to get listed in this group, but also get some some backing and some clients behind us that we can have a proven track record. So when they do go, the next thing that they do is they go to references. Right. And so we don't have any... They, we have references in Australia, but I'm sure you can imagine where I'm going <laughs> with this. In the US, they're like... Who do you do business with in the U.S.? Yeah, we had one pipeline company ask us to come in, and they said, okay, so who in the U.S. do you do business with in pipeline? And we have a lot of conversations with Midstream. We don't have any paying clients yet. And they said, well, come back when you do. Golly, dude, I, I know that type of challenge. I mean, when we came down into the U.S. with the company I work with, it was always, well, who do you work for? And you know, they, they always want some sort of reference or some sort of proven track record because they don't want to be the guinea pig spending money on a company that right. they – is, you know, throwing up a hope. And so I can identify with the challenge being there. And But I mean, it sounds like you guys are doing some really neat stuff. You're gaining some traction. Hopefully you're ready to scale up when this thing takes off. Because I think to me, it's just a matter of time. So I'm excited where Red Eye, uh, you know, where you guys will be in the next five to, I mean, 10 years, you'll be, you know, flipping companies over left, right and center the way they do it. And hopefully, you know, more efficiently and just saving people money all over the place. So before we wrap a few things up here, I always ask, finish it off by asking some sort of more on the personal side of things. But do you have any daily routines or habits that keep you focused and just motivated to keep going to work every day? And and what do you enjoy most about, you know, coming into, well, if you guys don't have an office, but going to station every day, I mean, what keeps you every time you get up? I mean, what, what are you motivated by to keep going? 
Yeah, that's good. I like that question. So we do have an we have two offices at station, kind of like how the Canon has here. Yeah, I love my morning routine, and yeah. it's probably my favorite. We had a second child, as you can imagine. Kids are major disruptors. Yes. I, I call it a baby A. She was the wrecking ball. <laughs> so whatever routine you had is is no more. Oh, I know and all then about it. Baby B is I don't know. We don't have a nickname for hers, but she she's a wrecking ball as well. So, <laughs> okay. but my morning routine now is I get up and make breakfast for the kids, and that's cool. when I am here. So I traveled quite a bit. I missed out on a bit. And so when I am home, I try to get up and have the morning with the kids. Cool. I take one of the two girls to school. My wife takes the other one, and that's kind of our morning routine. I come in and I have quiet time. I think that's for me, it's important. Especially, I mean, this is my first time in a sales role. Yeah. So I've got a lot of questions for you on that. Yeah. I've worked with people in sales and I've always had sales teams when I was in a sales type role, but this is the first time that I'm directly responsible for sales. Oh boy. It's different. <laughs> also in charge of marketing. So my skill set in marketing and sales are are not there where I need them to be. So I'm working that's on that. That's intense. That's a lot to take on, man. Especially as a startup, that's going to be... Anyway, yeah. you got a big hill to climb, but I'm sure you're more than capable. Well, so that's my morning routine is there's a little time, quiet time, meditation. Yes. I try to learn something new that's not work-related. Cool. So every day I focus on something. Right now it's French. I'm trying to learn French. Oui. When the girls are a little older, we want to take a trip and sell in the med and hang out in France for a yeah. little bit. Est-ce que tu parles français? hey that's all good i grew up speaking french so did you really I, oh, yeah I figured, french yeah. immersion and okay and with the last name gautier so there you go i was wondering i heard them say gautier so yeah. yeah anyway so that no so you do that you do a little bit of quiet time trying to learn something new and then what else after that so i try to read 10 pages of something work related cool so marketing is a big one leadership sales and then, then I just go through and start my day. I start just going like organizing it and I write a list out okay. and then focus on what's my top priority. And, and I think that's a big thing people miss. I set strategy and a lot of people just skip strategy and they're very reactive. Yeah. Mine is I've, I've got to learn sales and marketing. I've got to learn my clients or my potential clients. And so I focus on those. And to me, that's number one priority and everything else is, is second. Okay. No, that's a neat morning routine. I Mine is somewhat similar and, and it was very similar until we had kids. So now it's yeah. a little different, but no, I think there's some big nuggets that people can take away and having, there's a saying and I forget who said it and it might've been Aubrey Marcus, but if you win the morning, you win the day. And for me, that's a huge thing. If I wake up, had a good sleep, again, I'm a data guy. So I look at my HRV, see where it's at and yeah. that kind of sets my day. But then, you know, going through it and, and, and kind of if I, if I get my exercise in the morning, knock a few things off the list that for me is important in the morning, the rest of the day, it just seems like it goes a lot smoother. So I'm sure you're in the same way. And if that, if that if a wrench gets thrown into your morning routine, it probably messes up the rest of your day, or at least it does for me. So I don't know, that, that's been a challenge for me, especially having kids, having that disruption in the morning. So now I get up a lot earlier than I used to. And so the sleep deprivation is, is certainly something that I face. Yeah. <laughs> but come right. Friday, I'm ready for the weekend to get a little few extra hours of sleep. And you have young kids too, so your sleep deprivation's on both sides probably. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 challenging, but everyone goes through it and the and the reward is greater than in anything oh, in the yeah, world for sure. For sure. Yeah. One last question I had, is there something that about you that not many people know about or if you have any good hidden secrets or interesting hobbies outside of what you do? Doesn't have to be any weird fetishes, but just something. <laughs> I mean, the keto thing was kind of cool. So, but anything other than that? I mean, do you have any neat hobbies? Anything you do to unplug that not many many people would know about? Well, I kind of tapped on it a second ago. I fell in love with sailing years ago. Oh, cool. Lived in Seattle for a while. And before I started in the, the for-profit industry, I was in nonprofit. 
and I did disaster relief. I was in the uh, one of the. I was there for three months after nine eleven, just organizing from the northwest. We had a group called Real Missions, and we responded. And then when I got back, there was a lady who was a real estate agent, and she she. I was just stressed, but it was it was kind of it wasn't anything that happened to me. It was just being around people that had their lives turned upside down, and mm. and doing that for for a few months. I kind of carried that weight with me, and this lady invited me to go sailing, and I'd never been on a sailboat. And she had a double masted sailboat, and she couldn't take it out by herself. And she she brought me out. If, yeah, don't, yeah, I'm just using terms. I'm assuming that double yeah, masted no, is it's, it's, it's two mast. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, it's funny because I was thinking back from when I. Anyway, yeah, I was thinking back from a memory I had with okay, my so, cousin that was sailing, and I was like, "Holy cow! Like I can't, I forgot I did that." But anyway, no, it's keep awesome. going. I mean, to cut you off. It yeah. just uh, blew my mind, man. So yeah. I, I went out, and we had this. I don't want to call it a near miss, but they had these huge shipping containers and that caused this huge wake. And she had, she yelled at me, I'm at the front and yeah. she yells at me and she's like, hold on. And she like turns into it and we go straight down and all this wave of water comes over me Ooh. and we come up and she's just worried that she's run selling for me and that I was hurt or going, you yeah. know, I hated her. Yeah, and I just awesome. like was smiling ear to ear and I'm like, this is amazing. And yeah. so I've got certified and that's actually my big trip with my girls. And then I'm planning in the next four or five years, I want to take, you know, a few months to a year off. What? and travel with them and sell the mediterranean and maybe oh, up dude, uh, that is so cool so Good that's an active you. goal of mine and that's actually one of my routines in the morning i look at the map that's on my wall and i just imagine myself with my girls with my family my wife as well and she's the key to keep it all together by yeah. the way so yeah. she's the glue that makes this work <laughs> but looking at that and figuring out where we're going to go what we're going to do dude, and planning that trip that's so cool just visualizing it it's going to yeah. happen it's going to manifest dude I'm, I'm i'm pumped i cannot wait to have you back on the podcast when you're all done that and you can explain nice. it and see how it goes because that would be so cool yeah man awesome well look that's uh, all the questions i had but i want to take a few moments before we close out here to tell everyone about our upcoming events hey guys alex here with the events on deck for December. We'll be having two OGGN happy hours to kick off 2020. One will be in January in Houston. We have not announced the date yet, but we'll get back with you guys soon on that. And we will be having our first happy hour in Pittsburgh in February 2020, also with the date coming soon. So stay tuned on those. Upcoming events include the Bells of Houston, a masquerade, unmasking the stigma of PTSD. This will take place on December 5th in Houston. The Latin America Oil and Gas Summit is December 5th and 6th in Uruguay. The API Energy Houston Chapter General Meeting will be held on December 11th, 2019 in Houston. The Wildcatters Ball is taking place on February 7th, 2020 in Houston. And lastly, the IPAA Leaders Industry Luncheon will be held on December 11th in Houston. That's all the events for this month, guys. Be sure to tune in at the beginning of January to see what's happening then. Awesome. Thank you. Anyone out there in the Houston area interested in playing oil field hockey? Come join the Hack and Whack crew for some old timer hockey. We do it every two weeks at Memorial City Mall Ice Rink. Hit me up on LinkedIn for more details. And if you're looking to get in shape over the winter, visit KTX Fit in Katy, Texas and get a free trial by one of the, by telling one of the coaches that I sent you. For all the listeners out there, if you want to support the show, please subscribe and leave a review. I would certainly appreciate it. Or if you simply just want to reach out on LinkedIn, a lot of people hit me up and and share their stories or, or, you know, just, you know, even make connections with other guests that I've had on the show. So I'm always willing to chat. If you have any questions on podcasting, I love helping people out. So just hit me up and start a conversation and let's grab a coffee. I, I would love it. Anyways, so Sean, thanks again for coming on to the show. What's the best way for people to reach out to you or your company? 
Yeah, thanks. I'm on LinkedIn. LinkedIn. It's forward okay. slash Sean Six, S-H-A-U-N-S-I-X. Perfect. And then you can email me at Sean at redeye.co. Perfect. Well, we'll put your link in the show notes. And that way, if people have any questions or want to reach out to get to know more, then they'll hit you up. So anyways, that's a wrap. Everyone out there, always remember when the density's up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town. Thanks. Tune in next week for another captivating episode of Tendeka's Oil & Gas Onshore Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasglobalnetwork.com. Network.com.